This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dreamland. My name is Kelly Chase, and I am the new monthly guest host of this show. For those of you who don't know me, I am the host of the UFO Rabbit Hole podcast and the co-founder of the media company Ontocalypse Productions. I was absolutely honored that Whitley asked me to take on this gig. I'm a huge fan of Whitley, of this podcast, and I really feel that Whitley is one of just the brightest thinkers, writers, and human beings in this topic. So it's an absolute honor to be here with all of you, and I hope to do this show justice. In my first episode with you, I'm going to be introducing you to a dear friend of mine, Dr. James Madden. Jim is a professor of philosophy and also the author of the recently published book, Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World. This book is already making a huge splash in ufology, earning praise from the likes of people like Jeffrey Kripal and Diana walsh Basalka. I'm really excited to dive into it more with you all here. I think it's one of the most interesting and compelling books that's been put out in the last several years, and it really gives us a way to start thinking new thoughts in the field of ufology, which is something that we've needed for a long time. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, James Madden. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Kelly, as always. Uh, I guess my well, first time here. But it's great to talk to you as always. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's my it's my first time here too. Right. <laughs> so we can we can do it together for the first time. Um, well, it's wonderful to talk to you. Uh, obviously, listeners of my show are very familiar with you, but um, for listeners of Dreamland who maybe aren't familiar with your work, um, can you maybe start us off by just introducing yourself and telling us how you, as a professor of philosophy, ended up in this real, weird world of ufology? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Uh, sometimes I ask myself that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as you know, I, I actually point this out in the book we're going to talk about. And, you know, those of who, have, who have met me before electronically like this will know, I was really not into the UFO topic until, you know, in the last few years, like a lot of people. And um, <laughs> literally what happened for me is uh, I was watching X-Files uh, with my teenage kids. Okay. Cause we, we try to expose them to the good things in life. Okay. And, um, in the, right when we got to the end of season one was when the, the first big Pentagon briefing happened where that summer 2021, right. Um, thought, wow. So suddenly the Pentagon is sort of saying, you're not crazy. If you think Fox Mulder was right. I mean, I know it wasn't quite that good, but it, it really struck me that this, this piece of lore that I grew up with was seemingly moving from mere lore to something that was like being taken seriously at the levels of the Pentagon. Of course, that whether it's being taken seriously or not, it was controversial, but it was in the dialogue at the Pentagon in a way it never been in my lifetime before. Right. And so uh, at that point, uh, I, you know, I started listening to podcasts and things. I started reading books for it on the first time. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a book guy. So that's how I react to all things is, is I find the books and read them. Um, I would like a lot of people who had never looked at this before, I mean, maybe who had been like unduly dismissive of it was just shocked by how good a lot of the literature on the UFO was from a scholarly standpoint. Uh, not to say it isn't mixed like any body of literature, but there, I was very impressed with, you know, authors I read like John Keel, right? Authors I read like Jack Fillet, authors like, like I read like, like, like Strieber. Um, and, and it, for me, it was to the point where I, I don't think 
this can be ruled out. Okay, we can't rule this out, which then began a, a process of thinking about it. And, I, and initially, I didn't really think it was something that a philosopher could contribute to. Okay. Um, and then I read, uh, you know, Diana Pasolko's stuff, and that really changed a lot because I saw someone trained not in the exact same field as I'm in, right? But but a related field in the humanities actually making a contribution to this, and raising thinkers like Heidegger and Nietzsche um, that are are right in my toolbox. And I realized, well, no, there probably is a contribution a philosopher can make to this. At the same time, I, I was writing a book on philosophy of mind. Um, and cognitive science. And I was starting to see dovetailings between the issues that I was working on in sort of my day job and the issues that were coming up for me in my sort of intellectual hobby. Uh, and I started to see a road where I think a philosopher could make, make a contribution to this. Right. And that process, you know, culminated with me, uh, writing, you know, unidentified flying hyperobjects, uh, UFOs, philosophy in the end of the world, which, uh, came out with Ontocalypse Press. Right? I'm very grateful to Kelly for all her help <laughs> with that. Um, and so here I am, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, a mid-career academic who suddenly found himself, uh, unawares as a ufologist. Well, it's been really cool to watch your work as it developed. I've been lucky enough to, you know, be friends with you while all of that was going on. And I know it's been kind of a whirlwind for you since the book was published back in November. Um, what have you been up to now? Like how have things changed and what sure. are you working on next? Well, there's, there's been lots of podcasts. Okay. Uh, with, with the book coming out though, I have to say, uh, getting to come back and podcast with, with you again, Kelly, it's like, it's like, you know, Paul McCartney and John Lennon getting get back together for another, although we didn't break up. <laughs> You're getting back together for like one more benefit concert or something like that. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I've loved the podcasting. Um, I went to, uh, um, my first UFO, uh, uh, conference, right. Where we saw each other there. Right. Um, I, uh, continue to write my Substack, uh, and I, I recently, uh, put a piece out analyzing Bernardo Kasprup's take on the UFO that he published recently. So people actually might look at that. Um, I have, I have been, uh, recently named as a member of the board of advisors to, um, the society for the study of UAPs, right? Which that's a great honor. I'm very excited about that and seeing where that goes. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm, uh, just continuing to read, write and think. That's awesome. And I heard you have a new course coming up on morbid oh, yes. anatomy also. Yes. Can you tell us a yeah, bit I'm, about that? I'm going to be doing a course uh, through an organization called Morbid Anatomy. Uh, they're uh, uh, basically an online uh, college. I mean, I mean, not accredited, but they, they just offer an array of classes, mostly in, in aesthetics and um, psychoanalysis. And, uh, and now they've moved into doing some courses on ufology. Um, so Diana Paselka has taught a couple of courses there. Um, I've did one previously on philosophy of technology, but now I'm going to do a course on my book, uh, uh unidentified flying hyperobject through them. It's going to begin it. What'll it be, it'll begin the last Wednesday of March. So, but check out morbid anatomy, uh, on the interweb, uh, for, for the dates when those come up. Awesome. That's wonderful. So excited for that. And uh, I think it's really great because listeners here today, we can give them a little bit of a sneak peek about, you know, exactly what your book is about. I think that what excites me most about your book is that it offers ideas that are novel and different than, you know, it, it's been a while. It takes a lot to really bring something new to this field. And uh, I think you've managed to do that by approaching it from a philosophical angle, which really hasn't been done before. So 
Um, I'd love to kind of just dive into some of your thinking that contributed to this book. I think one of the things that I learned about from you and from this book that I've found to be so helpful in understanding UFOs and also just not to steal the name of your book, but thinking about thinking, you know, how do we how do we think about the way that we think is the idea of um, object oriented ontology. And I thought maybe we could start there if you want to talk a little bit about what that sure. is. Sure. You know, yeah, definitely. I, think it's, I actually think that is the right place to start to talk about this work. And um, it's interesting, you know, when you go, you write a book. Okay. And this actually will fit some of the things I'm saying in the book. It's like the book sort of takes on a life of its own, right? It becomes bigger than you in a lot of ways. And I have found every time I've done an interview about it, I've learned things about my own book that I, that I don't think I was really aware of. Okay. And I think the, the sum total of all the interviewing I've done since we last talked, I think it's shown me that really, um, the book is about in a lot of ways, ontological shock. Okay. Yeah. And that term ontological shock gets used quite a bit in ufology. Okay. You know, in, in, I think it was introduced into the field by John Mack. Before that, you could find it used in a, a, a 20th century theologian uh, by the name of Paul Tillich. I think he coined the term. Um, but I, th I think one of the things that, as I was working my way into the UFO world, was I was kind of struck. And I, I know this is this is a little snotty, and I don't I don't mean that, okay? But I was kind of struck like how that notion of ontological shock got tossed around. But most of the proposals for what the UFO is, you know, most of the interpretations of it were not very shocking ontologically at all. Okay. Um, in a lot of ways, I think most of what I've encountered in it, um, although I think there's exceptions like John Keel, I think, um, pretty close to some of the stuff I'm up to. Okay. And there's others, right? Um, but I think, um, most of what I was encountering was really just doubling down on our going consensus ontology, right? As, as, as the winnowing fork for, for thinking about the UFO. And it, it wasn't seeing the UFO as actually putting our basic ontology into question at all. Okay. And the, the way I, the way I kind of bring this up in, in the book is I talk about, um, what I call the Goldilocks ontology. Okay. And the Goldilocks ontology is, is this, uh, is, Basically, human beings, uh, you know, are, are evolved to deal with objects on a certain scale. Okay. Uh, if I asked, you know, if I asked, you know, Kelly to, to count the objects, uh, in the room that she's in right now, you know, she would say, you know, that she would count the chair she's sitting on. She would count probably herself. I would think, right. She would count, you know, the, the computer that she's working at. She'd count the desk, right? You know, you might count that, that lovely plant behind you and the posters and all those things. Okay. Unlikely that Kelly would, uh, include the photons in the room. Okay. Unlikely, you know, that Kelly would include the germs on the desk. Okay. Um, and in fact, if she brought either of those up, we might even find that a little odd. Okay. Unlikely that she would count the internet as an object in the room with her, right? Unlikely would she count the, um, you know, the, the Ohio power company. Okay. <laughs> Whoever's bringing your, your energy. Okay. Um, she so wouldn't count those things. Okay. And why is that? Cause I, I'm, I'm going to make a case here that those objects are very much in the room with her right now too, but she's not going to count those or you want to count those sort of the third person thing. 
you wouldn't count those because humans are basically evolved to deal with these sort of, to use a, a common phrase in philosophy, these middle-sized dried goods that we can get our hands on, that we can see with our eyes, that we can touch and smell, that like make a practical difference for how we go about. Whereas like the photons don't really make a practical difference, right? Uh, the power company, the internet is not something we can get our hands on. So we're always biased to think about things in that Goldilocks ontology. Okay. So we tend to, whenever we're confronted with something, we put it into, we think of it on a scale of the things that we can put our hands on. Okay. And this, and even, even if we, if we think there are such things as immaterial objects, if you think, say, like a human mind or a human soul is an immaterial object, we tend to think of it as, you know, sort of like a ghost, which is more or less just you, but invisible. We still think of it as this sort of Goldilocks sized object, quote unquote, in that case, right? On a ba on the basic scale of things that we were evolved to deal with. Okay. And so I think inevitably then when we encounter something like the UFO, what do we do? We, um, we translate it. We put it into our Goldilocks ontology. We think of it as something on the scale we're used to dealing with. So it's just a spaceship now. Okay. Right. It's, it's something like a demon or an angel, which there though is that's already kind of putting it on an individuated person scale that, that we're used to dealing with. Okay. And so it seemed to me to make, this is my kind of my critique of ufology is it seemed to me that most of what I was seeing in ufology by going into, you know, the nut, the classic nuts and bolts versus the classic angels, demons, spirits, fairies thing was really not seeing the UFO as questioning our ontology, but it was just a, a further extension of our normal human evolved uh, ontology. Uh, is that a good start, do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great start. And I mean, it really struck me when you introduced that idea to me, because I know that when I started doing this work, um, I had been doing the podcast and studying UFOs for over a year before I realized that I'd actually had a second UFO sighting. I knew I had had one, but the second yeah. one that I didn't like classify as a UFO sighting was it did, was because it didn't look like what I thought a UFO should look like. It didn't look like a ship. It didn't look like, um, you know, it was kind of translucent and fuzzy and uh, it didn't look like something that so could have passengers necessarily. Yeah. And so I didn't think of it as a UFO. And so that idea really resonated with me because I recognized how easy it is to miss things when we're categorizing them in these very sort of narrow ways. Right. Right. And, and I want to be careful too, because I'm not saying like the desk that Kelly's sitting at isn't real. Okay. I, I think it is real. I'm, I'm, I'm not an idealist. I'm a realist. So I think that desk is real. Okay. I think it's real even independently of us. Okay. Um, my point though is, is that desk is among a range of objects, um, that are just right for us. Okay. But there's no reason to think up front, the objects that are just right for us are the only objects. Okay. And we're going to tend to anything that we encounter that's outside of the Goldilocks zone of our perception and cognition. We're going to tend to try to force things into the Goldilocks zone. Okay. So another way that uh, I do this in the book, uh, and the way, the, the way I do this in the book is I, as I, and this is how I like to proceed in general in teaching and in writing is I come at something from a lot of different angles to hit the same idea. Um, from these different angles and hopefully it adds up to like a more plastic understanding is, you know, there's a, a famous example that's drawn from 
uh, behavioral biology and it's, it's had some work in phenomenological philosophy and it's had some work in cognitive science now, this notion of an Umwelt. Okay. And an Umwelt, it literally means in German, around the world. And it's often gets translated uh, as environment, but I, I want to be careful with that because I think that means something very different to us in English. Okay. But think of like the Umwelt is basically our Goldilocks ontology. Okay. And to motivate this, there's a, a famous example that's used of, about a tick. Okay. So uh, apparently there's some kind of tick that's basically got three senses. Okay. And all it has is it can, it can sense the amount of, I think it's butyric acid, mammalian skin acid in its immediate environment. So it can, it can sense when there's more or less skin acid in its environment. It can sense differences in the, the in temperature. So it, you know, it can see heat signals, see quote unquote heat signals. And it can feel differences in the tension on a surface that it's on. So it could like feel where skin is stretched tightly, I think is how, is how it goes. And with those three senses alone, that tick can time it jump on you when you're walking by in a way that it's going to get to the vein and, you know, put its uh, stinger in there and suck your blood. All right. And think of it, that tick, it has, it has a very limited sensory package. It's got those three senses and that's it. It's whole uh, Goldilocks ontology is just built on the information that it gets from, from those senses. All right. Um, and so, you know, when, it, when that tick jumps on me and bites me, all right, it's getting something right about me, right? I do indeed emit butyric acid. I do indeed have give out heat signals. I do indeed have surface tensions on my skin, all that. All right. Um, so it's getting me right. The problem is, is what I am far transcends anything that's in the tick's umwelt, okay? Uh, and the way that this gets put in, in, in Heideggerian phenomenology and uh, in object ontology, which we'll work our way towards here, is that I, as an object, withdraw from the tick's umwelt. I withdraw from it. I'm, I'm, I'm in it, but I'm always running away from it. And there's more of me running away from it than, than, I, than I dip into, into the umwelt of the tick, okay? And so, but now no, like think of what we were just talking about is we humans, are no less bound to a narrow umwelt than is the tick. Uh, you know, our, our senses have been evolved to do certain very practical things. There are other ways, other things that could have been done. There are other practical demands that could have been made on us such that our senses would have evolved in different directions. Notice the tick. Uh, you and I are not sensing the butyric acid in our environment right now, though it's right here around us. Okay. And so it seems then we have to say that we too are, uh, in a limited umwelt, it's real. The stuff we sent, I think, is there. However, uh, it's not all that's there, and the object really withdraws from us. So in the same way that we withdraw from the tick, there's more to our being than is ever apparent to the tick. Likewise, the tick withdraws from us. There's more to the tick's being, probably, than is ever, what is ever apparent to us as human beings, however hard we think and, and research, because it's always going to be tied back to our basic perceptual package. Okay. So the idea then is it's objects as we encounter them are always sort of transcendent of our packaging of them. Okay. Which then means like the world then once you, once you make that move is very mysterious, right? There's as much in what I call the Uber umbelt, right? The, or the, the, the super around world, the world that's beyond what's around us. There's always more in that than what's in our around world in our umbelt, which means, you know, we should not be surprised when we're surprised. Okay. Because it, uh, there's always more. Okay. And maybe occasionally we bump into things that are just at the edge of our Goldilocks ontology, right? They don't really fit. They're just at the edge. 
Uh, and you would think our experience of those things would be that they would be quite uncanny. One of our favorite words, right? Mm-hmm. It would be quite uncanny. They'd be unexpected. We might even say they would be alien to us. Okay. And, and you can see where I'm going here is in general, I think if we start thinking in terms of the, this umbelt, uber umbelt distinction, we're on our way, in my view, to something like a grand theory of everything weird. Okay. Or it's sort of non-theory theory. Cause we're saying it's not accountable in anything intelligible to us, but it's an account of it. It makes sense that there would be weird things now. I think that's fantastic. And I'm excited to dive into that more, which we'll do right after this commercial break. All right. And we're back. So, Jim, I absolutely love this idea that you're presenting. I think that there's so many fascinating doors that it opens up. And I also am really struck by how it dovetails so nicely with some of the revelations that are coming out in sort of the more nuts and bolts side of disclosure ufology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like when we think about the fact that uh, things that David Grush is talking about, we're not just talking about, you know, bodies of non-human intelligences, but biologics is this word that's suddenly yeah. been introduced into the conversation. Um, and there's long been this suggestion that perhaps uh, some of the beings that are most often seen like gray aliens might actually be some sort of artificial being powered by AI or something like that. So, and, you know, when you talk about this, it makes me think how much that makes sense, that if you were something that existed in our uber umvel and something that maybe we aren't designed to deal with, that perhaps your intermediary would be some kind of an avatar that we would recognize as something that we could interact with and communicate with, but would also be so different from us that we would understand that it was alien in some right. way. And so I just, I find it to be really valuable. And that's just one of the many ways that comes to mind. If we wanted to like reach out to the ticks, how would we do it? <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, we'd have to figure out something relevant to their, to their umfeld. Okay. It, we'd have to do it in terms of like skin acid. Okay. And, and think of it, yeah, even in, in our attempts to do it would always come off as clumsy and weird to the tick because you know, it's not our jam. And, and so you, you could say, yeah, the, the things that, that come to us from the Uber Umbelt are uncanny and weird because whatever is trying to do this is trying to remind us that there's something more. It could be part of the message. It would also be just, it's inherently clunky to, to try to talk across the, the, the Umbelt, Uber Umbelt divide too. Well, not something that you and I have talked about a lot in kind of our personal conversations with regard to a lot of the themes in Whitley's book, Them, where he talks about, he kind of makes some of those same points and tries to kind of dissect how a truly non-human intelligence might try to communicate with us. Right. Right. And, and I think, um, this is something I, I, I bring up. It's in the book and I, and I did it again in the, in the piece I just did in my Substack about Castrop's uh, take on, on the uh, UFO or the UAP. And the point is, is, is it, it seems to me that it, this is probably not something that can be figured out from our end. <laughs> okay. That, it, I mean, that's one of the, th- that's one of the themes of my, my stuff in general is what the UFO is doing more than anything is, is just revealing to us the limits of human cognition and the limits of human perception. Okay. Like, I think this notion of the liminal is really, is, is important in many ways and it comes up. And, and for me, um, 
it, it, we have to be open that this might be a limit we can't go beyond. All right. And in that, in that maybe what the UFO can do for us is remind us that in fact, we do live in one among many possible umbelt and there is a great uber umbelt out there and the ball is not always in our court, right? That maybe there is a place where, where humans do need to collect or be listened for something else, right? Um, because the, our attempts to like sort of put it, our attempts to make sense of it are always going to pull it back into our Goldilocks ontology, which is precisely where it doesn't belong. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the way that you take it one step further in the book that I think is really cool is with this idea of a hyper object. So maybe we can just start with the idea of like what a hyper object is. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's go back to you know, our inventory of, of the room, okay? You know, like, like uh, you know, although I, well, Kelly's a good philosopher, so she would have counted the photons and she would have mentioned the internet, but, you know, sort of a, a more naive, okay. Um, you know, Kelly, you know, especially Kelly wouldn't like mention the internet as an object with her probably, right? Or the power company's object with her, okay? There's a famous, and when I mean famous, I mean very old uh, debate about this sort of thing, going back to Aristotle. And Aristotle, and I won't necessarily go into all the details of the argumentation here, but Aristotle makes a very good case that any, anything that has an integrity of its own, meaning it, you know, it would continue to be what it is, even though its parts can be replaced, okay, and anything that has a kind of control over its parts, all right, and anything that has powers and ability that its parts don't have, if something meets those criteria, then it's a real object in and of itself. Okay. It's not just something you can reduce to or say is replaceable by its parts. Okay. Aristotle mainly has in mind organisms here. Uh, you know, he likes to point out that, you know, take, take, you know, your, your cat, you know, Fluffy and, you know, Fluffy could, you know, survive an incremental replacement of all of her parts, right? I mean, literally through metabolism several times throughout her lifetime, all of her parts at the lowest level of, of analysis are going to get changed over with parts in the environment. But you still have Fluffy. The cat still remains. So it seems like the cat has an integrity independently of the presence of the parts that compose it now. Like, likewise, you know, the, all the molecules and subatomic particles that compose Fluffy behave differently because they are in Fluffy's composition. They do different things that they, that they wouldn't do outside of her body. The so there's a kind of control the organism has over its parts. Um, and then finally, you know, um, the molecules composing Fluffy don't hunt, they don't date in the cat way, they don't grow hair all on their own, et cetera, et cetera. So there are powers Fluffy has that her parts don't have. So Aristotle says, ergo, Fluffy's an object. Fluffy's a substance right? over and above her parts. Okay, We can't just say we're going to have a material story about the cat that replaces it or just reduces it entirely to a story about its parts. doesn't mean there's some magic gizmo that's making Fluffy be. Fluffy is something like an emergent entity or, or a compositional entity. That's all fine. But, but Aristotle uh, would assert, yeah, but Fluffy is though an entity. And when we're counting things in the universe, we do count Fluffy. We don't just count her parts. Okay. Now, a guy named Grab Harmon uh, is a contemporary philosopher and uh, I think very well worth reading. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if you do show notes in this or not, but we get some references in there if you do. Um, Harmon argues, well, he didn't think Aristotle went far enough okay? because Aristotle says, okay, so the, the basic material stuff, the chemical level stuff is real and then Fluffy's real, but then Aristotle's not going to count something like 
the population of cats as an object, right? He'll count Kelly and Jim as real and the parts of us as real in autonomous ways, but he's not going to count our friendship as an object, okay? Or our political community as an object, only, only in a very derivative sense. But Harmon, and this, I love this example, Harmon uses the example of a Pizza Hut restaurant, okay? I don't know if this means he likes Pizza Hut or he has a beef against Pizza Hut. Uh, he uses the example of Pizza Hut. And he says, well, take any, any Pizza Hut restaurant. Um, it will survive an incremental replacement of its parts. That, you know, probably, you know, everyone who works at that Pizza Hut probably won't work there 10 years from now. You know, slowly over time, all of the equipment's going to get replaced. You know, it's maybe, maybe the building's rickety, so all of its parts over time could get replaced. And we would still say the Pizza Hut restaurant persists independently of its parts in a way. Clearly, the Pizza Hut restaurant has um, powers that the parts don't have. Like none of those things can make Pizza Hut pizza independently of the restaurant. Okay. So it has its own powers and it exerts a certain control. Like we all behave differently because we're in Pizza Hut than we would elsewhere. Um, otherwise we'd get kicked out. Okay. Or fired. All right. So Harmon says, well, in what sense then is Pizza Hut, the Pizza Hut restaurant, not an object in the same sense that I am, that you are, that the chair you're sitting on, that Fluffy the cat is an object. He says it meets all the criteria. So he says, look, if we're, if we're going to be fair here, then the, then the restaurant's an object. Okay. But then Harmon says, what about the pizza corporation? Well, yeah, we, the same argument worked. It has an influence on its parts. It, it will persist through the change of its parts. Um, it has a kind of definitely has control over its parts. Okay. So it looks like the, the corporation pizza, pizza Inc is an object now, a substance operating autonomously on its own. And we can keep extending that. So probably could, we could say the same thing about the economy or about the environment. And it looks like we're, there's all these grand, massive, systematic entities in the same way that an organism is a systematic entity that are operating in ways autonomous to their parts. Okay. Another philosopher by the name of, of Timothy Morton comes along and Morton uh, adopts the term hyperobject to talk about this. He says, yeah, there, there are objects that are so grand in scale that operate on such large, like literal geographic scales and literal temporal scales, and that would be important for us, um, that we only get a little glimpse of them. Like no one can get a picture of the Pizza Hut Corporation. We can go and look at this or that restaurant, but this or that restaurant is really just a part or an expression of a controlled entity of the corporation that is Pizza Hut. No one can get a full glimpse of the economy. We just can see this or that unemployment line, this or that you know, bank statement or what have you. And those are just expressions, right, of the overall system. You know, we can't really see the environment because it's too big, too large, operating too long, too big of a timescale for us to deal. But we can experience this or that, you know, storm or this or that flood or this or that sunny day, whatever. Uh, you see, the point is there are objects that, that withdraw from us, okay, not, that are withdraw to us into the uber umfeld that are operating at scales we can't fathom okay that we just can't fathom and so um the, the point i'm what i what i want to propose is it could be that what we're witnessing as the nuts and bolts aspect of the the ufo or even the high strangeness aspect of the ufo are all expression of a grand hyper object a systematic entity that is operating in our uber umbel. I think that's fascinating. And it, I think those two, those two ideas together, like you said, they don't necessarily 
commit us to anything, but they give us room to understand what might be going on. And I think to also argue for the thing that is sometimes hardest to argue for, especially among kind of the uninitiated and people who are new to these ideas, which is just how weird these things are, that they're that they are unintelligible to us on in a very profound way often at times. And, and that makes so much sense if it's coming from something outside of our own belt. And if it also is potentially something that is a hyper object where we're only seeing just, you know, a, a piece of it instead of the whole thing, it kind of explains why the high strangeness element is so persistent in these experiences. Yeah, because it, it is literally coming at us from outside of our very capacity for sense making so it, it 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 literally will not make sense to us okay and and i think it's important to, to see here is um this should this this ontological increase should come at fairly low expense evidentially in that not not without evidence but but low expense evidentially and what i mean by that is I think there's good reasons already to think that there are hyperobjects. I mean, I think, I think the case that Morton makes for the environment is a hyperobject. The economy is a hyperobject. I think the, um, the case that Graham Harmon makes for the civil war being an object still on the loose and world having effects. I think there's very good cases to be made for this. So I'm not asking us to add something that we, that we don't already have very good evidence for as a category. Um, and so since we already kind of have this, or we thought of have this in, the, in our explanatory back pocket, it's easy then to deploy that in looking at the UFO. So now there, it seems like there's this whole technological system out there that's producing machinery, okay, and, and psychological experiences too, that is, is operating in ways we don't understand, okay? Well, if you could have an environmental system, you could have an economic system, that's operating on scales we don't quite fathom. Why couldn't a technological system operate on scales that we couldn't fathom? Okay. But I think, you know, I, my, I'll say my theory has a harder time making sense of the nuts and bolts part of it, but I think it can make sense of it to say, you know, um, there may very well be technological systems that are vast and all encompassing that are operating over umbelt. And we're just seeing little, little flickers of them in our umbelt, which is the nuts and bolts stuff. Well, another idea that you present in the book that I find to be really fascinating um, is that is that this could be potentially something that we kicked off. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, look at take the economy. I mean, it, it's it it is composed by not just humans standing around; it's composed by humans doing things. Okay. So there's a sense in which the economy is an artifact of human doing, but notice no one planned it. No one sat down and said, Let, let's have an economy. As much as we'd like to think we do that, we don't. Um, and so, that, so it's, what is the economy? It's this sort of hybrid thing that happens uh, when you have an interaction between certain human natural doings and something else in the world that those human natural doings interact with and then thereby create this grand hybrid object. Um, this is something that's explored quite a bit by a philosopher named uh, Bruno Latour. Uh, and his book, I think the best place to start for that for him would be, we have never been modern. Okay. And so, and, you know, Morton points out how, you know, there are now, um, earth scientists, geologists, uh, environmental scientists who, who talk about the Anthropocene as a, like a, a geological age of the earth. 
Okay. And Morton makes the case that he thinks the Anthropocene is a thing now, doing its own thing, operating on its own. But it was it resulted from humans doing things, going about our human business in certain ways, unreflectively, then interacting with the environment. And that interaction brings about a higher order object that now seems to be running the show from top down. And so, um, you know, look, uh, you have the UFO, although I think, you know, we can, we can make the case that there's always been some kind of, you know, appearance of thing in the sky to humans. Um, in Valet's work, you see that. In, in, in Carl Jung's work, you see that. A lot of people are, are, have pointed that out. But it picks up, it takes off, as it were, in the mid-20th century, or, or maybe a little earlier than that. And, well, I think this hypothesis can make sense of that because suddenly human beings are literally going into parts of the earth we've never gone to before up in the sky with our technology. Uh, we're doing things like introducing uh, all sorts of communications technology, radio, television, all these things that are having a human effect in wavelengths and like in, in different places, literally, than we've never had an effect before. And, and then we, you know, we, we start writing off nukes. Okay. And so we introduce all these new things into the world. Well, it seems perfectly plausible then that, that our getting out of our lane, our kind of moving beyond what we were originally evolved to do you know, in our umvelt, it's causing us to interact with things that were out there that we've never really encountered before. And the result of that is going to be a new systematic object, a new hyper object. Okay. That's going to now have a downward effect on us and whatever the heck was out there that we bumped into. Okay. And so once again, it's sort of like the, the, the UFO as a single kind of organism that is, has emerged from the human interaction with the environment, much like the Anthropocene is sort of like an organism that emerges from the human interaction with the environment or, or you know, the civil war was an organism or is an organism of its own that emerged from a human interaction with this environment. Uh, I'm proposing that maybe the UFO is something like that. I think that's really profound. And it also speaks to something that experiencers and contactees have been reporting for decades, which is that they are getting some kind of a message from non-human intelligences that boils down to, you know, we are you. And yeah. maybe maybe they are us in the same way that the economy is us and the satellites orbiting the planet are us. And but it's some kind of in some bit we we've sparked a hyper object that is us, yeah. but is also yeah. kind of able to have this downward effect on us also able to control in, us in the same way that you might talk to the cells in your body and say, you are me. Like you, you are you are an interacting part of me. Um, or you can, or maybe, you know, you are us is we emerged from your activity and now we have a life of our own and we're running it, right? Which seems to be a, the a, a certain kind of trouble humans are good at getting ourselves into, right? Of creating these systematic <laughs> holes that then run us, right? I.e. the internet. Yeah, no, I think that makes so much sense. So the other idea in your book that I wanted to get to is obviously the second part of the title is UFOs, philosophy, and the end of the world. And we've talked about UFOs, we've talked about philosophy, but um, what exactly do you mean when you talk about the end of the world and why do you feel like that's so important and relevant to this conversation about UFOs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one, I mean, just it's one of the tropes of, of the UFO conversation is, is apocalyptic. So I'm, I'm playing on that a little bit. Okay. Maybe even having a little fun with it, but also, uh, more seriously, 
I mean, may, may, maybe the UFO portends the literal destruction of, of the, I mean, the planet will be fine. Destruction of the human race. Okay. Or, you know, like literally the destruction of sentience and the rest of it. Maybe, maybe that's it. I'm not ruling that out. Uh, we're doing our best to rule it in right now. It's okay. Um, but when I say end of the world, I mean world more in the phenomenological sense of the world. And so you might have said, um, you know, UFOs philosophy in the end of our umwelt. Okay. And my point is, is it does seem that the UFO is showing up for us, you know, at a point in our history when we sort of feel our sense-making abilities are starting to like fall apart a little bit, that we're getting ourselves into trouble that seem to outstrip the human ability to like reason our way out of. Okay. And, and Carl Jung, you know, you know, already in the fifties and, and I still think is like unmatched classic, uh, book on the ufo he's already bringing this up he said you know it's, it's not surprising to him as a psychoanalysis analyst that people are having these visions of technological objects in the sky portending the end right or demanding a return to the whole again it makes sense because he says look we're we're at a, we're at a moment of crisis unprecedented in human history that you know, humans have taken on the ability to destroy themselves All right and and so, of course, that, that lends itself to a literal apocalyptic notion, but also lends itself to the sort of phenomenological apocalyptic notion is that it seems that, uh, like all of our things that told us that like, like we were, we were running, like we were special, we're running things that the world is here for us. It looks like we're on the verge of making sure the world is going to get on very well without us through our own doing. And that leads to a kind of self-questioning, um, that's I think radical in human history. All right. And it now now entered the UFO. And in no like Young is not dismissing the reality of the of the phenomena. I mean, you can tell like when he, in when you read his book, he kind of wants to, but he just can't do it. He's like, you know, it's not just a projection. It's not just a projection because he points out people see the tracks of them on the ground. You know, they they it's been tracked on radar, all these things. And so what what's going on there is it it seems like whatever is showing up here. Is showing up to us at a time where we really need to put ourselves into question in a way that humans have not before, right? And it seems like, like repeatedly to me, the message of the UFO is, is anti-humanist, not anti-human, but anti-humanist to say, look, you guys are not the point of this whole thing. Uh, you guys are not really running the show. All right. It's, it's this sort of like message of humility. All right. And if you think of it, you know, so right now we're at this verge of not just nuclear annihilation, but this sort of like introduction of these other technologies with, you know, artificial general intelligence and the internet and all these things that seem to be like you know, suggesting that we might be replaceable by our own technology that seem to be, you know, sort of like undermining our ability to like pay attention to anything, but our, but our own sort of worldly, you know, often vapid concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I won't rehearse all the griping with the internet, right? Um, and at precisely that moment, you know, something is showing up and saying, Hey, uh, don't you hear it? You guys aren't the point. And you're thinking you're the point is really what's undermining you right now. Like your very self-obsession is what is undermining you. Right. And that to me, that the sort of the end of the humanist world, right. As I think what we're seeing with the UFO. I find that so fascinating because I do think that that's a sense that a lot of people have. You know, I think 
that in more fringe communities and, you know, even the experiencer community, that the idea that, or, you know, religious or spiritual communities, the idea that the end is nigh is kind of Mm -hmm. ubiquitous. But I think that even among kind of just your everyday people walking down the street who don't think a lot about these things, that there's this sense that we have, especially in Western culture and probably globally, that we're about to come up against something from which we won't escape kind of in being the same thing that we are now. And it's interesting how all of that is happening while this kind of growing emergence of non-human intelligence is, is happening, happening in our public awareness and, you know, the emergence of AI and, you know, for the first time in decades, I think there's real anxiety about the use of nuclear weapons. Like it feels like something that could potentially happen tomorrow and we wouldn't be totally shocked and it's it's wild how that's all kind of happening at the same time all at once all at once right Right. yeah um yeah i agree and 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 you think of it you know just the the kind of cultural changes that have gone on for both good and ill for the last couple generations the basic package of what a human life looks like from cradle to grave has changed very radically at a speed that it never has before. It's, it's been, I mean, for a couple hundred years, it's been a crazy upswing and change. But just in the last, you know, 70, 80 years, it's changed it's many ways for the better. But um, it does seem at some point we're, we're like outrunning what we were evolved to do. And, and our abilities to make sense of the world that we're in are just evaporating around us. Right. Um, now, in, in, in the kind of like Heideggerian approach I have to these things, um, you know, there's a gloominess about that. They are, our, our umbelt, our sense-making possibilities are going away. Okay. But there's a lot, like the, the only way we're going to get through our humanistic obsessions, which I think are our problem, that, that they're, they're the source of so many of our problems. The only way we're going to get through them or over them is to kind of ride this thing all the way down to the bottom. That's Heidegger's view is you just kind of, we're going to have to just ride the techno nihilistic train all the way to the bottom. Uh, cause then, and only then will we be able to listen to something that might speak to us from the Uber Umbelt that might be able to turn us around. Okay. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm like this pessimistic optimist and that I think we're on rails that we can't get off of in terms of, in terms of wrecking our ability to make sense. But I also think that might be the only thing that's going to produce a kind of cognitive space for us to to hear the message. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, you and I have talked about this personally a lot, and yeah. you know, I share <laughs> a lot of your pessimism about this. Um, but I'm also ultimately an optimist, and I'm always looking for like how can I how can I feel good about this because I do feel like humans and humanity are a valuable thing. And to watch us not necessarily even destroy ourselves, because it's hard to know if that's what's happening, but we're going to stop being the thing that we are. Our technology seems to have made that certain. And and it makes it it strikes me that a lot of this, what we're talking about, is sort of or it could be kind of a global initiatory process. You know, there's always that moment in the hero's journey where it seems like all hope is lost this yeah. it's that absolute like the pit of darkness where it feels like the hero is lost and it's all over and nothing is ever going to be good ever again 
but you managed to rise past that or rise to that occasion and and becomes and you do become something new in the process like that's a that story is ingrained into us um i guess i just worry that people don't have the the will and the self-awareness to rise to the occasion in that way that in some ways we become too passive um but i do see an opportunity there if you can rise to that dark moment and allow yourself to be transformed into the thing that you need to be to take it to the next level, that there is hope there, I think. And I try to I try to cling to that. Yeah, me too. And, and I think you make, at the end of you make, you make, you strike one in favor of the pessimism in a way, you know, because <laughs> you and I, are, I think are in agreement here is like the, the stakes aren't, like Heidegger actually says this, he thinks the worst fate for us would not be nuclear annihilation or environmental annihilation. I mean, he's, he, those, I mean, he doesn't take that lightly, but his view is that we would not do that to ourselves and just become oblivious to being entirely, that we would be just so ensconced in our technological nightmare that we just cannot pay attention to anything but our own obsessions. Okay. Um, so I think there's a risk here that we, that we can become so distracted. We can become so, you know, huffing our own fumes so much. And now the technology is only making that worse that we can't listen. Okay. But then for me, that becomes, okay, that's the mission. That's like what you're doing. That's what, what Whitley's doing. That's what, you know, like a lot of people are doing is to say, look, there's, there seems to be something to try to get through to us. Let's look at that thing. Um, so for me, that becomes the mission statement. Yeah, I I was really influenced by your work in naming my media company Ontocalypse Productions. And Ontocalypse, for me, um, felt like a really important idea because I think that what we're talking about is more than just ontological shock. Like beginning, recognizing this hyper object at its edges and seeing yeah. it peep through our umvelt, like that caused ontological shock. Right, exactly. That causes ontological shock, but and on, but I think that what we're approaching as a species is more of an ontological apocalypse, which yeah. is, you know, where all of those things kind of get torn apart and put back together, and that that is really scary because yes. we can't because we don't know what's going to happen because if we could even think the thought of what that process is going to be, we would already be on the other side of it, right? Like if we, yeah. but we can't, we can't conceive of what that ontological apocalypse is going to be or what form it's going to take. And seemingly from everything that's going on in the world, it could take a lot of different forms and maybe a lot of different forms simultaneously. But it feels like we're talking about more than just something that's shocking, but something that's kind of annihilating in a, in a real way. Yeah, you know, uh, I, by the way, I, as you know, when you told me the name of your, of your company, I was like, I, I must be a part of that. <laughs> the name is so perfect. Um, the, uh, remember, uh, apocalypse also means revelation, you know, so that, you know, the, the last book of the Christian Bible, you know, can, is sometimes called the book of revelation and sometimes called the apocalypse. And so the, the apocalypse is the revelation sort of, of what was always there all along. Right. So that's what, you know, so what do we, what do we have? What's going to be revealed to us is a, duff, a different ontology, a different way of being, but, and that could be great. And it, okay. And even if it isn't great, it, it's what is. And, and I, I think you have to learn to embrace what is, but this thing that's being revealed to us, 
this this way of being is not our way of being, or at least not the one that we've been been living for you know the last you know tens of thousands of years. And it, it's very like this is what sort of views I have about the afterlife. Um, if there is an afterlife, it's very hard for me to look forward to it because it's so different from anything I can fathom in this life. But I don't know how to look forward to something I can't even understand. All I know is it's not my life now. Okay. Well, what, what, are, we, what are we kind of finding out here with this notion of, of apocalypse and revelation? Is like the world has an afterlife, right? Humanity has an afterlife collectively. And that could be great, but I don't know how we can look forward to that because it's not us. It's not what we are now. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that... I'm not sure. Sorry, No, absolutely. And I think think you see that anxiety in our culture a lot. There's sort of a lot of wishing ourselves back that goes on in our culture now. Yeah. Um, You know, all of our feelings of, you know, hope and optimism are often kind of rooted in this idea that we can go back, you know, to the... When things were more stable, when things were, you know, whatever... time period a person thinks was you know the best well mostly in like the last 40 years like back to the 50s or maybe back to the 90s or when things just didn't seem quite so heavy but unfortunately it seems like you know we have to we have to look forward even if we don't know what exactly it is that we're looking forward to yeah and 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 let's just use the 1950s as an example when anyone you know in my circles talks about how great it would be to go back to that i'm like well are you a woman because i don't think so you know are you are you an African-American? I don't think you want to go back to the 1950s, right? Sort of, you know, one person's nostalgia is someone else's nightmare. Um, and I think that's important for these kinds of things. Um, have we ever talked about a book by a guy named Jonathan Lear called Radical Hope? I don't think so. Okay. This, this is one of my favorite books to come out in like the last 10 years. And it, Jonathan Lear is a brilliant philosopher who has uh, taught for a long time at the University of Chicago. He wrote a book called Radical Hope which is a recounting of the life of the last um, chief of the Crow uh, Native Americans, okay? And his name was Plenty Coop. And Plenty Coop was, was, was the chief who brought them into the reservation. And after he brought them to the reservation, you know, many years later, he had, a, he had a friend who was writing a biography of him. And he asked him to give his life story. And he gave his brilliant life story from his birth and like hunting the buffalo as a youth and then fighting in the wars. And then, and then the, the, he gets to the reservation and Plenty Coop was a relatively young man at that point when they get to the reservation. And then he said, he ends it right there and says, and after that, nothing happened. And, and, and nothing, what the thing that happened was nothing, right? Nothing happened. And the biographer says, well, what do you mean? You know, we've been friends all that time. And, and, and he, and Plenicum says, well, you would be better able to tell me what happened than, than for me, than for me to say, because I, to me, it, nothing has happened. And what he's saying is the ontology that he lived in was all built around the Buffalo hunt. And that was over as soon as they got in the reservation, it was over. So he, he was unable to make sense of the world anymore in any meaningful way that at that moment, he had an apocalypse, his world ended. Okay. And I think what's going on, we're, we're having, like, we're, we're experiencing nothing happening right now. Okay. Now, interesting thing about, about Plenty Coops is, Plenty Coops, sorry, is he had this choice. He was still the leader of his people. And he, he had to choose between, on the one hand, there are elements who are saying, we got to go out, you know, just like some of the more radicals did and like, go the way of Sitting Bull 
or you know, or or drown or and and just better dead than than to go to the reservation. So it's like sort of like suicidal. There's no way things could be, but they but the way they were in our past. They kind of cling to the past, and there was all these religious revivals of the old religion and stuff for them. That, that we're just going to bring it. We're going to like go back to the way it was. And Plenicum says well, it's just not available. We can't do that anymore. All right. And there are others who said, hey, let's just become like white people. Okay. Let's just assimilate completely all that. And Plenicum says, but that doesn't work either. Okay. And what he said, he has a dream in which he's told he has to have the virtue of the chickadee. And in their mythology, the chickadee is a mimic. And what, but what he means by mimic is we have to listen. We have to learn to listen for what to do. Okay. And so Plenty Coop just sort of holds himself in a kind of suspension, waiting to hear something new. And along the way, he actually turned the crow into the most successful tribe that went to the reservation um, because he was willing to kind of like hang out in the nothing and wait for something new to show itself. I think it's a beautiful story. Yeah. It is beautiful. And it's, it seems like it really applies here and that, you know, there seems to be something that's, like you said, trying to get our attention. And whatever that thing is, uh, we might want to try to get still and listen yeah. to what it has to say, because it might be able to help us. I, I counsel the virtue of the chickadee. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, that's an amazing place to leave it for the free portion of the episode. Um, we will be continuing with another 30 minutes of conversation for paid members of Dreamland. And I hope you guys will join us over there. So have, have we ever talked about the doomsday argument by, by Brandon Carter? I don't think we have. Cool. So um, th this is apropos to where we were per a little earlier in our conversation. So it's actually, um, Carter, my understanding, never published it. He was an applied mathematician and uh, had done a lot on um, the fine-tuning question in, in the anthro anthropic principle, okay, which you might have heard of. And a guy named John Leslie, who is one of the strangest, most interesting contemporary analytic philosophers wrote a book about the doomsday argument. And it's, it's fabulously simple. So the one empirical assumption is that human, human population growth is always kind of like expanding out, maybe exponentially, you know? So, uh, so, you know, there's for every generation, the population of humans grows, right. And grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And if you think of it then, any randomly chosen human, like you, you're just going to choose a human out of the bag and you don't know what time period exists in. Okay. It becomes then highly probable that that human lives very close to the end of the human race rather than anywhere close to the beginning of it. Right. Cause the vast majority of humans are going to live in the last few very big generations. Okay. So if we, if we pull, we pull a human out of the hat and it's, and it's Kelly Chase it's probable that Kelly Chase lives at the end. Okay. And it's very improbable that Kelly Chase lives in the beginning. The earlier you put her in, in human history, the less likely that for that to be the case. Okay. So Carter and Leslie would say, yeah, it, like our intuitions that we're living at the end are always correct. Okay. And we're, we're mostly wrong about it because most generations aren't at the end, but, but our intuition that we're at the end is always correct. Okay. So there's, so our, our worries about literal apocalypse is not are not unfounded on on this view. Right? <laughs> That's so funny. It makes sense though. That makes a lot of sense. We, it makes sense. What yeah. are we over eight billion people now? I believe. Yeah, yeah. And so think of like what what the early generations. You know, we're talking initially in the hundreds, and then you know then the thousands, the ten thousands. 
So there, there may, I don't know the real number on this, but maybe right now there's more humans alive now than the entire prior run or something like that. And so very likely, yeah, for any generation, uh, if you don't know anything else about a human individual, you have every reason to believe that they're living towards the end of human existence. Yeah. And then another Le- sunny thought. Book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Leslie's book he then goes on to make a good case for like maybe we should try not to destroy ourselves then. <laughs> so. Maybe. We'll see. We'll think about on a dower note, yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, well, uh, I wanted to transition to talking about some of the newer work that you're working on. Sure. I know you had told me that there was a new article that you're working on uh, regarding David Hume. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, and, and this is inspired. And like what really got me going on this just in the last, gosh, week or so was your last episode on UFO rabbit hole. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, the, in that episode, you discuss quite a bit the work of Trevor Penguin. Okay. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Paglin. And Paglin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Paglin. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And um, so Paglin has uh, this famous, maybe infamous exhibit he did. And there's sort of a film accompanying it called uh, You Got Effed by a Psyop. Okay. Uh, and the subtitle is Because Physical Wounds Can Heal. All right. And that was originally a patch, uh, 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 an insignia patch from a uh, a very, you know, sort of spooky, clandestine military organization. And Pang- Paglin has gone about the business of sort of analyzing, collecting and analyzing these things. Okay. And um, this, okay, so the idea is, is that in, in, in this view, we're moving to what he calls a PSYOP capitalism, okay, where every one of us is now because of things like artificial general intelligence that's coming because of the sort of attention economy of the internet, all these things, we're all, we're moving towards all living in a tailored psyop, right? Like a, like a, a world, an umbelt that is created for us, a cave that is created for us to keep us on board with something. Okay. Um, that is sort of playing with our cognitive faculties from the inside out. Is that a fair way? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And so, okay, so so going back to the point about David Hume, David Hume, uh, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, you know, uh, sort of famous or infamous uh, bringer of the Enlightenment, the English-speaking world, uh, in a lot of his view, had a, a very, very influential argument on miracles. Okay. And Hume argues that there's absolutely no way anyone could be justified in believing that a miracle had occurred. Okay. Based on, on human testimony. All right. And why? Well, because Hume says you always have to weigh the probability on the one hand that the miracle occurred. Okay. Uh, against the, the likelihood that the testimony was just wrong. Okay. Uh, because he says in general, we should believe testimony. Like only a crazy person goes around thinking everybody's lying to them because for the most part, humans are telling the truth. Okay. Um, but he does say testimony is fallible. People do lie to you sometimes. People are confused sometimes. People believe things out of motivated bias sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. But, so testimony isn't foolproof, but it's pretty good. And, he, and Hugh points out like one of the things that makes you most mistrust uh, the testimony is when what's testified to is in and of itself inherently improbable. It's just not how things go normally in the world. 
Okay. So if Kelly said to me, Hey Jim, you know, I just saw somebody, you know, uh, you know, walk across the Cuyahoga river. Okay. Though was this worried about the Cuyahoga river before? Um, but I just saw somebody walk across the Cuyahoga river. Um, I would say, I don't believe Kelly because that sort of thing just doesn't happen. All right. Or I would need to have more evidence than just Kelly's testimony. Okay. Whereas if Kelly said, Hey Jim, you know, it's sunny today in Cleveland, right? Though, though often not sunny in Cleveland. It's, it's perfectly plausible given the background of what I know about the world that, um, it is sunny today in Cleveland and therefore I'm going to take her out of word there. So the point is, is like, you know, when someone testifies to something that you know, ahead of time to be highly improbable, that's a reason to mistrust the testimony. When they testify to something that, you know, prior to that is perfectly plausible, maybe even probable that that's an affirmation of your, your given trust for the testimony. Okay. And Hume's argument against miracles is to say, well, a miracle is by definition, something highly, highly improbable, right? It's like, the, it's like the, the, it's the least probable thing. Okay. And so it, when Kelly says, Hey, you know, I saw somebody walk across the river. Hume says the only way I could accept that is if it would be a greater miracle that Kelly were wrong about that than that the miracle occurred. D does that make sense? It'd have to be more improbable that she was wrong than it's improbable that somebody walked across the river. And Hume says, given what we know about the world, it's always going to be more probable that Kelly's wrong than that somebody walked across the river. So you can never really believe something anomalous ever happened. Okay. And so what, what Hume's argument does is like, like not just miracles, just anomalous phenomena in general, unless you can like make a case that we're going to figure out how it fits into our, our prior probabilities. You're never, you're never right to believe that they occurred simply based on the testimony. Okay. Well, and that seems to and be the approach that like, well, and that seems to be the approach that most debunkers take, right? Where it doesn't, yeah. the answer yeah. is always that the person is lying or they're mistaken or, yeah. and it doesn't matter how many people are lying or mistaken, because it's always going to be more likely that those people, no matter how many yeah. of them there are, are lying or mistaken than that someone walked across the Cuyahoga River. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mick West didn't think this up. It's David Hume. <laughs> okay. We'll and, let and, him know. And let's, yeah, let him know. <laughs> no, not to Mick, right? You need a footnote. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, and let's, let's give the devil his due. I mean, Hume's got a point here. Um, you know, we, we don't want to just be credulous. And when someone does testify to something really extraordinary, uh, it's right to say, okay, what's more likely that, that person's, you know, uh, a huckster or off the rocker or something like that. Not, I don't mean to make light of people's problems, right? But, uh, or that this, that this event occurred. And that's why we, I know people in the UFO world get testy about, was it Sagan who said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? Okay. Uh, I'm not so frosty about that. Okay. I'm not so frosty about that. Um, now, now one way without getting into, you know, you just got effed by a, uh, by a psyop, but even leaving aside is, and this, I think this is much of what like say a uh, Jeff Kripal is up to, um, is well, really how anomalous is this stuff? Uh, there's a lot, I mean, and, and if we start looking at, at, a, there are a lot more, I mean, this is one of the things that moved me is, um, I actually thought that the testimony for sort of the founding re religious miracles of the religions 
was more reliable than someone like Hume was giving it. Not enough to sort of prove it, not enough to rule it in, but not enough to rule it out either. Okay. So it seemed to me like if someone believed in the founding miracles of certain religions, they weren't off their rocker. Okay. Cause, cause the testimony was, I thought you could make a case that there was some kind of reliability to this. All right. Um, but now take the UFO. I mean, in like, you know, read like people like Richard Dolan make a very good case with this is you've got tens of thousands of reports you know, to look, go look at, um, Jeff's archives in, in Houston, right? You, know, you look at like what, what Whitley's had with all the letters, hundreds of thousands, right? Isn't it hundreds of thousands of letters that, that he's drawing from in them of people testifying to this. Some of these people, like one of the cases I analyze in my book, it's written, the, the letter came from a perceptual psychologist. This is a very reliable source on this. Okay. Now, uh, that one person being wrong, uh, uh against the uh, improbability of, you know, the, the, the weird clown incident on the freeway. Okay. Yeah. That's, I, I agree. Uh, it doesn't come out well there, but now put that in the context where we do have tens and tens of thousands of these reports. One wonders if, if we can actually just meet Hume on his own ground here and just say, no, the, actually there's enough evidence to say this testimony is pretty reliable. Okay. So that's one way to approach it. What I'm thinking of developing this point, though, is once you admit that, as you highlight in, in your discussion of this on your show, that we, we have been so psyop that it's, it's perfectly plausible that there's this entirely alternate history of the United States of America that has transpired over the last 80 years. And, and you and I have talked maybe long before that, you know, like what's going on in the architecture in Cleveland or St. Louis, really, right? Um, if you admit that we've been psyoped to the point that we're not quite sure what our actual history is at a very fundamental level and in, in looking at like things like the Manhattan Project happened, okay, um, when the vast majority of people working for the Manhattan Project didn't know they were doing it and uh, had no idea this, that what they were involved in until we announced that. Uh, we dropped the first atomic weapon on Japan. Okay. But you know, look, our access to that is only what we've been told. Okay. All right. And then once we admit that this isn't, this isn't always ordered towards truth. Okay. Well then how do we set the probabilities of what normally happens? Like, how do we say, here's the background of plausibility. Here's the background of, of stuff that we can rule in or rule out as a matter of common sense. When we're starting to realize that common sense has been psyoped. Right? Like we've, we've all been effed by common sense. Okay. Um, when I start thinking that way, when I, and, and I don't think you have to be crazy to think that way. Okay. When I start thinking that way, then I'm like, well, really, what can we rule out prima facie? What can we rule out based on common sense? Um, because it looks like that whole thing has been played with so badly that the epistemic waters are very sullied now. And so it is harder for me to dismiss a lot of the, the anomalous stuff that I would have been more comfortable dismissing even just a couple of years ago, uh, because I'm realizing now, you know, we are social animals. We are dependent on a, on a, on a fairly pristine epistemic environment for us to get information to act on. And it seems like we don't have a pristine epistemic environment that there's stuff going on beyond our ken, at least you know, for you and me, that's skewing common sense in certain ways. And so if someone says, you know, um, you know, St. Stanislaus levitated in the 17th century or something like that. Whereas a while, not long ago, I would just ruled that out on basically Humean grounds. Now I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what to say is 
plausible background for assessing these claims. Absolutely. I, um, I love that episode and I can say that because I didn't write it. Um, <laughs> so I'm not just being vain. Um, I want to give credit to my friend, Mark Burchek, who wrote the, that episode. He's a filmmaker and a writer and a researcher and a really, really bright guy. And um, I'll link to that in the episode notes, um, along with some of his other work. He published some work with Diana Pasalka. He's just a, a brilliant guy. And I thought he did an amazing job with the episode. Um, and as I was reading the episode after he sent it to me, there were things in there that just absolutely smacked me in the face. Um, you know, obviously being in the world of UFOs, I think about psyops and the black world and, you know, all of that all the time. Um, but what I didn't realize is, you know, he quoted a study that basically showed that we are right now creating five times as many classified documents as we are publishing books and articles in any in all languages all over the world. And which is just like the most terrifying thing I've ever heard, because very literally our our history and our knowledge are becoming a state secret. There is more that is there is more in the storehouses of human knowledge that is kept from us than is put out into the public sphere. And so how do we even begin to make sense of what could be true or what's not true? I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. And, and so I think uh, you and I have talked about this before is ontological shock is one thing, but I, I think maybe more moving is epistemic shock, epistemological shock. Okay. Uh, cause I think, I think epistemological shock is going to lead you to ontological shock. So, so what you and I are talking about here is, is once you make this turn that we're talking about, okay, it's not like, oh, it looks like, you know, we, we, we need a pristine environment of information for us to sort of be rational actors and to, and to, and to, and to know what we're doing in, in like assessing various claims. And, oh, it turns out this one way of doing it has been shown to be bad. Now we have this like better, more pristine one to fall back on. We're not saying that. What we're saying is it looks like we are, we're, we're falling without a net. Do you get what I mean? In that, um, whatever the information is that we would need to sort of assess any claim, okay, we just don't have it now, right? Or at least we, we, we don't know which among the claims that are being made that we can rely on because it's all mediated through this thoroughly psyop information environment. So, and I don't know if there is a good answer to this, but yeah. Because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but like, what do we do? I mean, you and I are both people who really like to kind of think our way into a problem and to not overly commit ourselves to ideas that we can't prove or justify. And yeah. so, I, you know, part of me is like, do I just quit? Like, what do I do? Yeah. Like, what do you think we do in this knowing that we can't, that we don't have access to the vast majority of the information that we would need to even begin to really have these conversations? Yeah. I, I think, um, this is a roundabout way is, is to agree with something David Hume. I, I think we have to learn to live with a kind of skepticism. Okay. But it's not a skepticism that denies you, um, any belief. Okay. Um, I think it's a, so, so for right now, um, I, I do not. Okay. So. In order for me to have a good marriage, right, um, I need to like trust that 
as, as I'm talking to you, my wife hasn't just emptied our bank account and run off to Mexico with a far better looking guy. Okay. Um, now I have, I have no evidence that she is or isn't doing that right now sitting here. Okay. I do have, you know, evidence of like, you know, 20 plus years of marriage. Okay. But even the, the, the level of trust it takes of a human, you know, human being to have a good marriage is, is more than just even the evidence of their good behavior over 20 years. It has to be a sort of absolute certainty in someone if you're going to, to be married to them, I would say. Okay. So my, my trust in my wife transcends the evidence that I have in her good behavior, even though she's never given me any reason to be clear as I say this. She doesn't give me any reason to mistrust her, but like, but, but even that's not enough. Like when you marry, when you marry someone, you have to trust them you know, in a way that's like infallible, but nothing's infallible. Okay. And so what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying here is we already in a lot of very, very important matters. We, we, we do our best and then we like, like we put more faith in something than it's owed. All right. We have to do our best first. Like I wouldn't say trust someone like your spouse of 22 years when you've only been dating for two weeks. That's a recipe for disaster. I think we've all had that after, right? Uh, but if you've been, if you're with someone for 22 years and they've been impeccable, even though it's still consistent with that impeccable behavior that they would, they would ruin your life. I think you still could, you, you, you continue to commit and stay with it 100% as if it's infallible. Okay. So what's my point is getting around in the world always assumes that we're, we're trusting the evidence more than the evidence warrants. warrants. There's a kind of faith act always going on as we get around in the world. Okay. And so here, you know, what, what am I going to do, you know, with respect to say anomalous phenomena? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to all the people I can about it. I'm going to read all the books I can about it. Uh, I'm going to look at all the evidence as best I can, and I'm going to make a judgment. And I know whatever judgment I make, I'm going beyond the evidence. I'm going to do that, but I'm doing that in everything in my life anyway. Okay. And I think we just have to get used to admitting to ourselves that we're fallible, admitting to ourselves that we're finite, admitting to ourselves we can be wrong about everything. Okay. Um, but then realize that doesn't really necessarily take anything away from you, right? It takes away from you kind of the arrogance of certainty, but it doesn't take away from your belief. It doesn't take away from you even rational justification. It just means you're going to admit there's always a footnote on everything you, everything you affirm. Yes, I affirm it. I've done my due diligence, but footnote, I could be wrong. Right. Yeah. I think that kind of humility is really important. And I, I think it's something that in some ways is hard to learn to live with at first and gets easier over time. Like it makes me yeah. think of even before, you know, I got really deep into all the UFO stuff, you know, there was the pandemic. And yeah. regardless of what anybody thinks about the pandemic without getting into all of that, I mean, there was a part of me in those first couple of weeks when everything was shutting down where I was just like, I really never thought any of this was possible. Like I intellectually knew that it was possible, but I didn't like actually think that it was. And having to learn to live with the fact that like that kind of contingency in in my world, I think capitalism in particular and the kind of capitalism that we're living in now, you know, it, it, it constantly projecting this kind of monoculture and stability and this idea that things are just going to keep getting better forever. And, yep. and so we, it can be really jarring for people who are, you know, maybe my age and a little bit older who haven't really experienced a lot of things that kind of like shake that worldview and make you recognize that like 
really bad things can happen and they can happen quickly. And that right. like the the basic mechanisms of how we live from day to day are highly contingent and that they can be right. disrupted almost at any time. Like I remember, I think having to come to deal with that, you know, there are older generations who have lived through those sorts of things and know it. But I, for me, I was like, well, this is news to me and I have to process this information. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm any, I feel less safe now, but it doesn't mean that I'm any less safe than I was before. Yeah. You know, because we, we, you're hitting on this sort of notion in Heideggerian phenomenology of thrownness. Okay. You just, you're just thrown into a world and that world was up and running before you got here. And there's this whole history of it that led up to it that you're kind of not even privy to. And there's a tendency to think that like your moment is somehow representative of all moments of human history. When in fact, no, this is a, just a moment it, and it hasn't always been this way and it won't always be this way. Going back to like the apocalyptic thing, right? Um, in higher ed now, you know, there's all this consternation about how, you know, we're, we're teaching for the first time, really, um, students who have been born since the digital revolution. So they don't have a memory of a life before the digital revolution. I mean, I can, you know, I, I, I held on to getting my, my first cell phone until I was like in my mid to late forties. <laughs> and so, you know, I have a long, I lived most of my life without that. And uh, and I, I find myself in, encountering my students thinking, oh my gosh, they, they, they have no idea what the world was like before the digital stuff. And, and I, I can get a little like chippy, like, well, they don't, they don't really understand anything. You know, they don't understand what the real world was like or something like that. But then I realized, you know, I'm in the generation, I was in the first generation that uh, didn't remember a pre-television era. Okay. And so I was no less thrown into something that I like, and look, I, I just take television as a given feature of human life. And, you know, we all like tend to like think our criticisms of, of technology and all that, that's the cell phone, but really it's no different than the television, right? There was this, there was just a different medium. And, and so what I'm getting at here is, is I think we all tend to think our moment is somehow the human paradigmatic moment when in fact it's fleeting, right? It's just one more iteration of probably much the same themes. Uh, just quantitatively different. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it makes me wonder too, if some of this, I mean, granted, I, I think the the dangers are real and the challenges we're up against are real, but speaking to that kind of anxiety, that, that like apocalyptic anxiety, there's something about how fast things are moving now where you can see that difference in, in your lifetime where people who were born not that long after you are living in a completely different world. Like I'm yeah. a, a millennial and I actually find it hilarious. The Gen Y loves to just like dog us constantly and make fun of us. Cause, and, and I just kind of enjoy it because we, they are very different. I've had, you know, I've worked with Gen Z people under me in my corporate life and that sort of thing. They're very different. And but at the same time, like 10, 15 years ago, I was them. That's not really that right. long ago. I was right. doing the same thing. But, you know, 15 years ago was before, uh, you know, the crash in 2008. And, you know, we were still kind of riding this like kind of party vibe that went from the right. 80s and the 90s and even into the 2000s where, you know, we were kind of naive and felt, you know, living was good and times were easy. And and it was uh it's just it's a fascinating thing to see, but I think that 
when we watch things move more quickly, we come uh, we become more aware of our own obsolescence in real time. And perhaps yeah. before, you know, I'm not even quite 40 yet, and I already feel like I'm I'm too old for certain fields and certain kinds of technology and certain kinds of, you know, and you start to see that happen more immediately. And yeah, I think there's maybe something to that. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, kind of going back to themes earlier in our conversation is, you know, by introducing these technologies, we're introducing things that are going to interact with the world in ways that we don't control. Okay. So I, I, as you know, I'm a big fan and I, I actually write about him quite a bit in, in the Unidentified Flying Hyperobjects book of a uh, 20th century philosopher by the name of uh, Gunther Anders. And Anders is already in the 1950s, uh, without even thinking of artificial intelligence the way we conceive of it, has, has said that we have abdicated control of our lives to our technological environments. Okay. Cause Anders has in mind the Manhattan Project as his group prime example of, you know, human endeavors taking on lives of their own. And then suddenly the, the, the endeavor is running us. Um, and, and he has in mind things like television media, all these things. He said, yeah, we introduced these things, but now they're running like what, like he's, he's worried about totalitarian control, but he doesn't think there's a smoky back room of people running it. It's like the systems have become lives of their own and they're running us. now. And I think like you're, you're kind of getting at that. It's like, you see this acceleration of change because we've let these animals loose into the world, which have now hybrided up with all sorts of things and created objects that we didn't intend. And now they run us. Right. Um, and, and they're probably on scales of time and space that we can't fathom. And they might be in the future reaching back at us right now. I'm perfectly open to it. Um, and I think that connects it kind of with the Yoko phenomenon again is, is this could just be tech that got out of, get, that we let loose, that interacted with the world and became something new. Well, and it seems like we're probably, well, not, not probably, I think we definitely are dealing with the hyper object in terms of the classified, you know, black world of, you know, that, that we're talking about is that, you know, another, another stat that really blew me away from that episode that Mark wrote was that um, there's literally more than twice as many people. It's 1.8 million people working in just the public sector government, what you think of as the government. And there's 4 million people who are working as like contractors or classified in, in classified positions. And it, so our, there, there's like this secret government that's literally twice as big as the government that we think of as our government that, that now exists. And, and, and that in and of itself is this kind of hyper object that got out of control. We set up, you know, the, the government and the military and the intelligence, you know, world to say like, hey, like protect us, take care of us, you know, make sure that things keep going. And, and now it's turned into this thing that's so much, that's so much bigger than us that we can't even get our, our arms around anymore. And it seems like there is a very, very small percentage of people who even know what that thing is up to. And it's yeah. probably up to a lot more than anyone can any one person can know. Exactly. Yeah. That, that statistic of the 1.8 million people in the government working in the light and the 4 million working in the dark, that when I was listening to that episode, that's where I paused. I'm like texting all my friends. See, I told you I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and you're right. It, it is, 
is there, because a lot of times I think people think you have to posit this sort of smoky back room of, you know, um, you know, of ultra powerful smoking men, right. Who are running the black world. And it might be, maybe no one runs. It's, it, it, it's all compartmentalized in the same way that there's no one running my body. Like my, there's a, my, my, there's no one running my organism. My organism is a systematic entity that has come to control a certain set of organic parts. Okay. Well, it might be the black world. No one runs it. It's a systematic entity, right? That is, it has a sort of organic control over its parts. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I actually, that's much more how I think of this than I do of there being something like a group of people who are consciously controlling it. I think, it, I think more likely what it is, is it's some, it's a systematic entity that's just run off on its own now. And where it's taking us is probably beyond our kin. Yeah. A question I've been asking myself a lot since working on that episode is, is why anyone would participate in this? You know, like, why would you, it's, it's just such a foreign idea to me that you would yeah. even participate in any of it. But as we're talking now, I'm kind of seeing that, well, first of all, probably there isn't anyone really running it. And if there are a group of people who think that they are running it, mm-hmm. that it, um, in some ways that probably their willingness to do so is a response to like the anxiety that it provokes to even know, uh, yeah how much how big this thing is and to feel like maybe you have some kind of a control over it and maybe you do feel like you're doing it for the good of your fellow humans for for better or worse and whether or not that's true or not you know obviously can be debated but you you know i guess it it helps me see a little bit more of what the motivation might be like why would people because i don't tend to believe in like mustache twisting villains i don't think there's a lot of truly just like soulless people out there i mean they exist but i it's yeah. So I just it's it's an interesting conversation because I think it's helped me yeah. kind of come around on that a little bit. And you know, you know, uh, this is a, this is a point that came up in, in your episode, and Anders makes this point a lot too. That you know, the vast majority of people working in the Manhattan Project did not know they were working in the Manhattan Project. You know, they 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 came in to do a certain job, you know, and they had no idea what the bigger picture of that job was. I I suspect for probably you know, 99.9% of the people in the black world, they signed up for a certain thing. They had a certain skill, they signed a contract and then to keep advancing, they had to like get higher level clearances. And next thing you know, they're deep into this thing and they have no idea how it relates outside of itself. And they're in no position to ask about it, you know? So, um, I've probably used this example before is, um, cognitive scientists love termites. Okay. Because termites are very easy to simulate in, in computer models because termites work by like a, like a list of two instructions, you know, you know, find the dirt ball, roll it till you get to something that smells like you leave the ball there, repeat, that's it. And then, you know, as inevitably the, the mound will get higher and higher and higher as, as the termites do this. And eventually it'll build this like beautiful, incredible, complicated, you know, cathedral structure. But not a single termite has any clue what it's doing in terms of building that. It has a certain set of like very low level instruction that just does its thing. Okay. I think for the most part, we, not always, but for the most part, we go around like termites. We've got a couple of instructions and we do it and we go and we have no idea what it adds up to. That's why I would say we, we have no idea. We have no idea what hyper objects are emerging from our activities. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have no idea. We have no idea what gods we serve. 
Oh, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Um, Jim, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. This is, uh, you know, obviously my first episode doing the show, and I knew you were the person I wanted to have on um, because I always enjoy our conversation so much, and your thinking has meant so much to me and your friendship. And so, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. As you know, it's always a blast to talk to you. It's an honor that you, that you had me on for this momentous episode. All right, I appreciate it. Um, thank the boss for letting me come on too. I appreciate uh, his willingness. So Absolutely anytime we'll do. I'll be happy to come back. Oh, awesome. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.